Book of Mark, chapter 8, continuing our discussions, contemplations of this divinely inspired book. Verse 22, Yeshua heals a blind man. When they arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Yeshua, and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. Yeshua took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Then, spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, Can you see anything now? The man looked around. Yes, he said, I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. Then Yeshua placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. Yeshua sent him away, saying, Don't go back into the village on your way home. Yeshua took the blind man out of the village, and I think he did so for three reasons. First, he wanted to give the blind man some privacy. Not everyone wants to have their issues dealt with before the crowd. Second, unlike many of today's so-called miracle workers and healers, Yeshua did not do miracles to entertain crowds and gain a larger following in order to receive bigger donations. This was a personal interaction between Yeshua and the blind man. The lesson for us is that Yeshua relates to each one of us personally, by name, as individuals, not just as parts of crowds or groups. Third, Yeshua was already being overwhelmed by crowds because of his many miracles, so much so that the crowds were interfering with his ministry. He did not want another great miracle to become known with the result that people would further overwhelm him and his disciples and further interfere with his ministry. Verse 26 confirms this. Yeshua sent him away saying, don't go back into the village on your way home. Notice that not only did Yeshua lay his hands on the blind man, and that is kind of a normal thing for healing, laying your hands on someone, but he also spit on the man's eyes. While today we might consider this gross, unsanitary, back then, physical contact between the miracle-working prophet and the person who was being healed was expected. For example, when the son of the woman from Shunem died, Elisha, who was not present with the child when he died, and when he found out about the death of the child from another location, he gave his servant his staff and told his servant to go ahead and lay the staff on the child physical contact, something from Elisha, his staff, coming into physical contact with the dead child. The servant did what Elisha told him to do, but nothing happened. Elisha followed. When he arrived, he lay down on the child's body, placing his mouth on the child's mouth, his eyes on the child's eyes, his hands on the child's hands. Physical contact. 
And the child's body began to grow warm again. Elisha then stretched himself out again on the child. And this time, the child came back to life. Physical contact between the prophet and the one being healed was part of this miracle. I believe that Yeshua touched the man and spat in his eyes uh, to help this blind man's faith, to have physical contact, especially with his eyes, so that he might uh, grow in faith and have enough faith for this miracle to take place. The lesson for us, faith in God, trust in God, confidence in God is so very, very important. Most of us don't start off with great faith. We grow in faith. God wants us to grow in faith and trust and confidence in him and who he is and what he's capable of doing. And so he will work in our lives in various ways, sometimes in very interesting and unusual ways, to help us grow in faith. Notice that this was a two-stage healing, which was unusual. Uh, Most of the healings that are recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not two-stage healings, and they didn't take place over a long period of time. These healings were instantaneous, and they were complete. They didn't happen in stages. Not this one. Stage one, Yeshua lays his hands on him, his saliva touches his eyes, and the man said, I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. Stage one. Stage two, Yeshua placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and his sight was completely restored and he could see everything clearly. Unusual. So why did the Holy Spirit, working through Mark, record this two-stage miracle for us? I think it's because the disciples were a lot like the blind man. They were seeing Yeshua but they were not seeing him clearly. They knew he was the Messiah. They knew he was doing miracles. They knew his teaching was profound. However, they still did not understand who he really was. They were not seeing him clearly. Only after his death and resurrection would they see him clearly. Only then were they full of faith and the Holy Spirit and became the great disciples the Lord wanted them to be. They had a two-stage healing. The question for us is, are we like the blind man who was in stage one only partially seeing? Are we like the disciples who were seeing Yeshua but not seeing him clearly? If we know that Yeshua is the Messiah and the Son of God, risen from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, full of grace and life and power, and if we are seriously living for him and his message of salvation, the gospel, then we are seeing him clearly. Is that you? Do you know who Yeshua is? And are you seriously living for him and his message, then you're seeing him clearly. 
What does the healing of the blind man teach us about Yeshua? It teaches us that humanity is like this blind man. Humanity is living in darkness, spiritual darkness. We are unable to see the truth. We are unable to see God. We are unable to see the way of salvation. Only Yeshua can help us see what we need to see in order to be reconciled to God and live forever, which is the purpose of life. Rabbi Glenn, Rabbi Jerry, any thoughts? I don't have anything to add. I have a few things to add. Um, so in terms of taking the man out of the village, there, there may have been yet another reason why Messiah in his wisdom took him away out of the village. I agree completely. You know, the man probably didn't want to be in the midst of a crowd when this is happening. Um, and maybe the people that brought him to Yeshua weren't like friends who really cared about him, but they heard that Yeshua's around and, hey, maybe we'll get to see a miracle. Hey, this guy's blind. Let's grab him and bring him out. So maybe Yeshua not wanting to cater to that looky-loo mentality uh, met the man's need, but didn't cater to that, just the mere curiosity. But another clue, I think, has to do with Bethsaida itself. There were three cities in particular in the Galilee region that received stern rebukes from him. One was Chorazin, one was Capernaum, and one was Bethsaida. And uh, in Matthew 11, he severely rebukes these towns for rejecting him in spite of the many miracles he performed there. So there is a possibility that it may have been merciful for the people in Bethsaida to not see yet another miracle and disbelieve. Every time we're given an opportunity like this but continue to reject him, we move closer and closer to damnation. So perhaps he's sparing them that much more judgment by doing this away from the city. And it would explain also why he didn't want him going back into the city. Um, and perhaps because Bethsaida saw so many miracles, think of eyesight, right? They saw so many miracles, they still didn't get it, they still didn't believe. So this man kind of represents Bethsaida. <laughs> he keeps ministering, they're not getting it and ministering. Well, you hope that they will eventually get it. But I think the fact that it's Bethsaida had something to do with that. I like that. To whom much is given, much is required, and truth rejected results in even more serious consequences. Anything else? No, that's it. Rabbi Jerry, next section, Peter's declaration about Yeshua, verse 27. Yeshua and his disciples left Galilee and went up to villages, went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, Who do people say I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, But who do you say I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah, but Yeshua warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now, where they're at now, they've left Galilee, is in a very pagan area. And so he asked them as they walk who people say he is. And he has given two sort of major answers. That he is John the Baptist, and that some say he is Elijah. They also report some believe he is a different prophet most likely maybe another prophet uh, from the Tanakh, from the Old Testament. Now, we see in Mark 6 with King Herod, this has been the opinion for some time, that he's either maybe Elijah or John the Baptist. And so what's interesting is that despite the efforts of the leaders to paint Yeshua as Satan or a rabble-rouser, most people seem to have a very positive opinion of him. He's either John the Baptist, who they like, or Elijah, who they also like. But Yeshua then asked the disciples who they think he is. 
Now, Peter, and this is important, you know, over and over again, we've seen how the disciples just don't seem to understand who he is. But Peter finally understands after all these miracles, he correctly identifies him as the Messiah. And this statement is basically found right here in the middle of Mark's gospel. And I think that's intentional with the structure of the gospel of Mark. But what's interesting is that Yeshua tells them to remain silent about this. So Peter, you know, he doesn't affirm Peter in his answer or say that he's wrong. He just immediately responds. We read here in the gospel, uh, Yeshua told them to all be very quiet about this. Now, I think the way the NLT translates this makes this warning sound less severe. But Yeshua is basically rebuking the word here in the Greek, Peter, the same way he kind of told demons to be silent. Now, obviously, he's not saying Peter is a demon, but the idea here is he really wants them to keep this quiet. Like, this is a very strong, severe command. Now, why is this? Why does he tell his disciples to remain silent about this? Well, it isn't because he thinks Peter's a demon, but rather, even though he knows Yeshua is the Messiah, his understanding of who the Messiah is, is wrong. And this section here, as we'll see, sort of bridges the previous section that Rabbi Lorne was talking about and the section Rabbi Glenn is about to talk about in a moment, this idea of this two-stage healing that he just did. It was also for the disciples' benefit. Because at this point, the disciples have made it kind of stage one. They know he's the Messiah, but they're not understanding who that is clearly. And we know this because we're going to see Yeshua rebuke Peter again here in a moment uh, with when Rabbi Glenn talks about it, uh, with his understanding of who the Messiah is. Peter expects a conquering, roaring Messiah. That's what the people expect. That's why they're saying he's Elijah. We see that Yeshua has to correct their expectations by what he says in the next section. And so this is why he tells them to remain quiet because they still don't fully understand who he is. And this is, again, just, I really want to emphasize this. This is really part of the major structure of this entire gospel. The first half of Mark's gospel could be kind of summarized as Yeshua explaining and then finally understanding that he is the Messiah. And the second part of Mark's gospel, as we'll see, is really all about how he's going to suffer, how he's going to die, that he's changing their expectations of what the Messiah does in his first coming. He has to sort of reorient their thinking. And right here in the center, we see that pivot, that movement from the first section to the second. Rabbis? I think another reason he told them not to tell others that he was the Messiah, even though, you know, he was the Messiah, is already huge crowds were following this miracle-working prophet so much so that it was interfering with his ministry if he went to a city or a village. He was completely overwhelmed and couldn't get rest. And so the crowds were already, you know, overwhelming him, his disciples, his ministry. If his disciples started telling everybody, look, this guy is not just Elijah. This guy is not just John the Baptist or someone. He is the Messiah. He is going to, you know, he's doing miracles. He's going to free us from the Roman Empire, right? That would have made a bad situation much, much worse. Well, obviously, there was a lot of speculation and some uncertainty surrounding Yeshua's origins. Um, clearly, he um, demonstrated power in what he was doing of such a magnitude that people knew something supernatural was taking place in their midst. What could account for that? And what do all three views have in common? Well, all three would have been in the category of supremely righteous human beings. Right? If John the Baptist or one of the prophets, then perhaps a righteous man who was raised from the dead. If Elijah, then someone who never died. But the, but the point is, supernatural power in the minds of Israelis at the time was equated with righteousness. But you see, there's a problem with that assumption too. And the assumption is that 
and, and the problem with that is, is that Satan can do supernatural things. Fallen angels can do supernatural things. We can't just assume that if we see a sign or a miracle that there's truth there also. So we have to be careful. But because Yeshua's teachings were known to be good and right and pure, those three views, even though they were incorrect, had a certain logic to them. This one is righteous. Um, uh, now, one more thing about uh, why did Yeshua warn them not to tell anyone he was the Messiah? Um, there's yet another reason. He is destined for that ultimate showdown, as it were, with Israel's religious leaders. But it was going to be on his timetable, right? It's on the Lord's timetable, not on theirs. And because it's not yet time to have that final confrontation leading to his death, he still had more teaching to do. He still had more healings to perform. It wasn't time to go broadcasting this thing far and wide. So it was going to be on his time. Um, but I think we should talk about uh, the question he asked. Who do people say that I am? That is the perfect, that is the quintessential question for us to ask people. Who do you think Yeshua is? It's the $64,000 question, except that $64,000 doesn't come close. It's the ultimate question. It's the question. And our answer to that is all important. So that's the question we should ask in the course of doing evangelism. Who do you think Jesus is? Of course, the answers you get are, will reveal to you whether this person knows or doesn't know. One of my favorite things I'll say, so who do you think Jesus is? Oh, I'm Catholic. <laughs> like, that's nice. I didn't ask what you are. I asked who you think Yeshua is. Who do you think, who do you think Jesus is? Well, I'm Jewish. Mazel tov, but I didn't ask who you are. <laughs> I asked who you think Jesus is because he's the issue. And the beautiful thing about that is, it takes the focus off us. We are not the issue. So it's very, very important. Each one of us is to be a bearer of the good news, to get ourselves up in a high place and boldly, courageously proclaim the message of Messiah, the gospel, the good news. A lot of times we don't know how to do that. The Word of God here is telling us a very simple way how to do that. When you try to engage a person in a conversation or someone is talking to you, um, don't get into, well, what do you think about Donald Trump? Uh, what do you think about Joe Biden? What do you think? No, you go right for the juggler. Who do you think Jesus is? You know, go to the heart of things. You know, if you're having an encounter with someone, a talk, especially with someone, you know, maybe not a friend or a relative that you'll see all the time, but, I mean, it's good with a friend or a relative, too. When you're having an interaction with a person, you, go, you cut to the quick. So tell me, um, who, do you who do you think Jesus is? And most people have, an you know, an opinion about Jesus. Um, and you don't use the name Yeshua because they don't know Yeshua. You use Jesus. Who do you think Jesus is? And they start talking. Well, that's interesting. I think Jesus is, you know, the, the, where they're right, you agree with them. Where they're wrong, you teach them. And that is basically what we are to be doing on a day-by-day -day basis. So go right for the juggler. When you're in a conversation with someone, summon the courage to ask them this question. Who do you think Jesus is? Yes, you're right. He is the Messiah. Yes, he is risen from the dead. Yes, he is alive now. Is he, but is he your Lord and Savior? Are you serving him? You know, I think he's the most wonderful being in the universe. What do you, what, what do you think? He's transformed my life. Uh, how about you? Who do you think Jesus is? And there's a good follow-up question to that as well. 
you know, reporters are supposed to be ready with follow-up questions, right? So who do you think Jesus is? And you listen as they give you an answer. And then you can follow it up with, let me ask you something. How did you arrive at that conclusion? Have you studied this out? Or is it just kind of general, vague impressions? It's good to ask a follow-up. Because then they're talking some more, and they're realizing, hmm, maybe I haven't really, haven't really investigated. That's good. All right, we're going to continue on in chapter 8. We're going to pick up at verse 31. Yeshua now is going to predict his death. Then Yeshua began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer terrible, many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later, he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Yeshua turned around and looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Have you ever wondered why Yeshua referred to himself so often as the Son of Man? Wouldn't he have just cleared away any doubt if he had just said, I am the Messiah, I am the Messiah, I am the Messiah? You think it would have made things simpler, but perhaps not so. Um, But calling himself Son of Man was more than just affirming his genuine humanity. To every biblically literate Jewish person of the day, every time he called himself the Son of Man, it would have hearkened them back to Daniel chapter 7 this famous prophecy, this vision. And that's where Daniel wrote, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming before the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which which will not be destroyed. So every time he calls himself son of man, every person who's familiar, and they knew the scriptures better than I think people do today, they're, they're thinking Daniel 7, the son of man presented before the ancient of days, the one given all glory who will rule over all the nations. That's just longhand for the Messiah. So every time Yeshua called himself son of man, he was affirming that he was and is the Messiah, but without using the word Messiah, which by that time had become highly politicized. He did not want to feed either a a nationalistic pride or to foment some kind of anti-Rome hostility. His first appearing was to make atonement for man's sin, not to overthrow Rome or restore Israeli sovereignty. But to make atonement for sinful mankind, it would be necessary for the righteous, innocent, pure Messiah to be rejected by the Jewish religious leaders and to lay down his life. And he begins to warn his disciples of this, and understandably, they didn't want to hear it. The elders... Zakinim, the priests, the Kohanim, and the Torah teachers ought to have been the very first to recognize the Messiah when he came. They should have been first in line to welcome him and to acclaim him. But uh, that's not how it was to be. They were corrupt. Their thirst for power overrode whatever knowledge of Scripture they had. Following the lead of their ancestors, who in every generation persecuted the righteous, these leaders were going to finish the job, condemning and having the Messiah himself executed. And so the disciples hearing these things are distraught. And Peter, who tended to act impulsively, (laughs) reprimands Messiah. Did you catch that? 
Peter reprimands the one he just acknowledged is the Messiah and Son of God. Why would he do that? What was he thinking? Well, the answer was he wasn't thinking. He was reacting emotionally. He loved his master. Yeshua doesn't rebuke him for loving him. But he loved his master. They've been sharing life and some amazing adventures together for three years. You and I might very well have done the same thing. I mean, it's easier to say, what was... Well, what's Peter thinking? <laughs> Rebuking the Son of God? What was he? Believe me, we are closer to him in our way of thinking about things than maybe we want to admit. But our feelings can never override what God's word has already decreed. Uh, nor can we afford to indulge feelings if they are in conflict with what we know God has already directed us. Very important. We must not allow our emotions, our sentimentality, to take priority over the firm word of God. Now, some people ask, why did Yeshua call Peter Satan? I don't believe this was Yeshua calling Peter Satan. Yeshua is speaking to Satan, Peter happens to be there, the unwitting mouthpiece in that moment. Nor do I think we should, I don't think we should be quick to think that Messiah would ever disparage one of his followers to call them Satan. But the fact is that Peter unwittingly spoke words prompted in his mind by Satan. So Yeshua, and this is just my understanding of it, looking right through and past Peter, is rebuking the enemy of old, the deceiver. And I think it will help us if we connect this with Satan's temptation of Yeshua in the wilderness at the outset of his ministry. Here he's almost at the conclusion of it. At the outset of his ministry, the devil, do you remember in the wilderness, offered Yeshua all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory if he would just fall down and worship Satan. Of course, Yeshua refused and rebuked him there. Remember, these are parallels. Satan tried to tempt him. Yeshua rebuked him. Now, um, we've already seen from the prophecy in Daniel 7 that all the nations will one day serve Messiah Yeshua. He is going to be Lord of the nations one day. Satan, both at that time in the wilderness and now speaking through one of his closest disciples, again, tries to deter Messiah from actually going to the cross. Satan doesn't want the Messiah dying for the sins of mankind because he knows that will reconcile us to God and set us free. He doesn't want that. So he tempted him in the wilderness to do an end around the cross. Just fall down and worship me and I'll give you all those kingdoms. And here, speaking through Peter, says, no, you, you, you must not die. You must not do that. Same tactic, same agenda. Get Yeshua to avoid the cross. Remember, if Yeshua doesn't give his life, According to what the scriptures foretold, mankind will be forever locked in our sinful, condemned state. And so this was my understanding of this for the second time in three years. Messiah directly rebukes Satan for trying to thwart what God had decreed. But the problem is sometimes we are seeing things from a human perspective and not from God's perspective. We frequently do the same thing Peter did. You know, we're quick to say, what was, what's the matter with this guy? We're not so different. We live in a fallen, I'm going to quote Rabbi Lauren, we live in a fallen, satanically influenced world, right? And just about everything that comes to us through our eyes and ears via the media and via the culture is corrupted. 
Everything coming at us appeals to our most selfish and sinful tendencies. To put it in graphic terms, we are marinating in a decaying, putrefying world. Left to ourselves, without the living and powerful word of God and the Holy Spirit within us, we will naturally begin flowing with and imitating the culture. We must not do that. We cannot afford to do that. And so we need to keep coming back to the word of God to recalibrate our thinking because we tend to get out of calibration in this sinful fallen world. To allow ourselves to go on spiritual cruise control is to be swept into the world's deadly current. So it's crucial that we subordinate our feelings and our sentimentalities and even our own thinking to the scriptures because our thinking affects our feelings. Our feelings affects our actions. Rabbi Lauren, Rabbi Jerry. It was great, Rabbi Glenn. Thank you. That was very good. Do I relax it? No, I, I, it was thorough. <laughs> very thorough. Uh, I just find it so interesting. He goes from a moment of great revelation. You are the Messiah. Like 30 seconds later, he's rebuking the Messiah, correcting the Messiah. <laughs> but it happened so fast. And I think if we're not careful, you know, we have to walk in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, like moment by moment. We can go off track. <laughs> we can be so close to God. One minute, everything's going great. We're seeing things pretty clearly. We're, you know... We're close to Yeshua, and within a very short time, we're like completely going off track. So um, one of the lessons, I think, for us is you have to live in the Spirit. Live in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Uh, be close to the Lord, thinking about His Word, um, like on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. Otherwise, things can reverse so suddenly. You know, there's, there's one other point I think I will add. I was thinking about what's interesting about Peter, and I, I think this is, he speaks for a lot of people here, but we see it most, I think, displayed in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, is when Peter is confident, he is very confident. <laughs> he, he, as Rabbi Lawrence just said, he goes 30 seconds before affirming him as the Messiah to rebuking him. But he's confident in his understanding of who the Messiah is, not necessarily because of his, you know, deep knowledge of scripture and study, but because he, this is the understanding of society in his day of who the Messiah was. Yeshua is now contradicting that understanding that people have, and he rebukes him for it because clearly, you know, everybody has to be right. How can Yeshua be right here? And is in this moment of passion, he responds. And this is also why he says, get behind me, Satan. I do think he is addressing Satan and working through Peter. But I think it's also, I mean, it's such a severe statement, right, to say this. And I think that is intentional to really just shake Peter in that moment as he was probably very passionate, maybe getting loud. He's rebuking him. It's a very strong word that's being used here. And so Yeshua needs to kind of snap him out of it a little bit. And so he says something like this, which would have probably stopped Peter in his tracks like mid-rant if he was, you know, you know, rebuking him in that moment to hear his master, his Lord, tell him, get behind me, Satan. And as we'll see with, you know, he, now that he rebukes him, we'll see as we come to the end of this chapter, the teaching comes into play of how they really ought to think about the Messiah and about their own lives. Verse 34, the cost of discipleship. Then... Calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, ouch, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, and for the sake of the good news. 
I'm going to read that again. And for the sake of the good news. One more time. And for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, let me repeat that, and my message, one more time, and my message, in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." Yeshua came to live for God. He came to proclaim the good news, the gospel, the message of salvation that alone can save human beings. He came to be rejected, suffer, die, and be resurrected. He demands that we have the same priorities if we are to be one of his followers. The Lord Yeshua demands total commitment from his followers. And yes, that means you. He demands that he and his agenda come first, not our own agenda for our own lives. We must give up our life in this world for his sake and for the sake of the good, no good news. If you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. Our Lord and Master and King and Savior and Messiah is teaching us that each one of us is to be a full-time evangelist. Can I repeat that? The Lord is teaching us that each one of us, if we want to be one of his followers, is to be a full-time evangelist in the sense of being a dedicated proclaimer of the message about Yeshua. What that means is your job is not just your job the way you make money. Your job is your mission field. Your friends and family members are not just your friends and family members. They are your mission field. The people that you come into contact with each day are not just the people you come into contact with with each day. They are your mission field. You are to live as a follower of the Lord for his sake, giving up your life, and for the sake of the gospel, the good news, the message of salvation. I think it's going to turn out that a lot of Christians and Messianic Jews who think they're Christians and Messianic Jews will not be Christians and Messianic Jews on the day of judgment because their motivation is to have a better life in this world, to be happy, to whatever. To motivate us to take up our cross, which is painful and leading towards a horrible death, and follow him and choose the way of true discipleship, Yeshua gives us the carrot and the stick. There's like two ways to motivate, like I guess a cow or a horse. One is the stick, you hit the cow, you hit the horse with the stick, right? That motivates him to go. Or you dangle a carrot in front of him and the nice sweet carrot motivates him to go, right? The carrot and the stick, the tough measures and the nice reward. First, the stick. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. 
What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? That's a lot of stick. Losing our lives, forfeiting our souls, losing the greatest possible thing, eternal life. Second, the carrot, positive incentive. But if you give up your life, your life in this world, for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, the good news, you will save it. That's the carrot, salvation, relationship with God that's unending, eternal life, living forever with glory and honor and unending unending happiness in Gan Aden, in heaven, in paradise, in the greatest city, the new Jerusalem. That's a lot of carrot, isn't it? What prevents us from, from living for Yeshua and for the good news the way we should, the way he wants us to? A lot of it is the fear of man. The fear of man, Yerat Adam, must be overcome. The fear of man must be defeated. The fear of man must be rejected. To help us overcome the fear of man, Yeshua motivates us with another stick. If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the two are connected. If you follow Yeshua, you must proclaim his message. If you're just sitting there thinking you're a good Christian, a good Messianic Jew, and you're not opening your mouth to everyone around you, you're not a good Christian. You're not a good Messianic Jew. You are failing your Lord. You are not living for his message. If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Yeshua is assuring us that the world is radically going to change one day. Life as we know it will be entirely different. The King of kings and the Lord of lords will return to earth with the holy angels. Yeshua will defeat all of his enemies. He will rule over the nations with a rod of iron. You won't courageously live for him and courageously proclaim his message now. He is warning you that you will not be living for him then. He will be ashamed of you. He will reject you. Faith sees this truth coming from the lips of the Son of God and gives up a good life, a a comfortable life, a a wealthy life in the present for Messiah's sake and for the sake of being faithful to proclaim the good news to everyone we can. Is that you? Rabbi Jerry, Rabbi Glenn. You know, we've been in the book of Revelation for some time now. We just finished up the seven letters to the seven communities. This right here is, is the heart of those letters. It is very clear that those who stand for the Lord will enjoy the choicest of blessings to those who overcome, to those who persevere. And throughout those letters, you see over and over again throughout God's word that those who are ashamed of God, those who reject God, will experience his judgment. You know, we we call this section the the cost of discipleship, uh, reference to Diedrich Bonhoeffer. I just want to end with, there was a quote I really love. There's a lot of good quotes in his books. But when we evaluate ourselves on a community level, where Evelyn Lawrence was talking about is our individual relationship with the Lord. But we also have to look at it as our communities as we come together. What kind of a community are we a part of? 
And too many so-called churches today preach a gospel that has been gutted, a gospel that has bits and pieces of uncomfortable statements like this removed from it, and they preach a, a type of gospel, a type of good news that Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. And he writes this. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Too many churches do that today. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. We have to be very careful and very aware on a personal level and on a corporate level level, who we worship, do we understand who he really is, this is what we've been talking about in Mark 8, and what are we actually doing with our lives about it. Because if you say you believe in the Messiah, that he is the Lord of your life, and you have no fruit, you have no priority towards him, your times, your talents, your treasures are spent chasing after the things of this world, what do you have to show for your faith? How can the Lord welcome you into his arms if you are basically with your heart rejecting him? And that's the heart of what's happening here is just like Peter and disciples needed to reorient themselves and really understand who they were following, we need to as well. And the Lord invites us to do this. He's preaching this message to his disciples who will get it. We need to get it as well. Thank you, Rabbi Jerry. Rabbi Glenn. Please stand. We're going to continue with our tifilot, our prayers, focusing on proclaiming the good news. I will begin. Elohe Yushenu, God of our salvation, your divinely inspired word declares that because of the fall.